senses. So they're driven by senses. So they think if they take over hometown of current president, it will kind of diminish his power, maybe? I don't know. Well, maybe that the uh, um, strategic and industrial importance of Krivoy Rog, as the Russians would call it, or Krivirich, has always been there. And that essentially it's one of the leading uh, logistical setups and centers. Uh, I think uh, it would be a tremendous, tremendous uh, loss for Ukraine if it were not in Ukrainian hands, whether uh, the president hails from there or not. I think there's substantial industrial capacity which merits a lot of attention. But there you go. I think we all agree on this one. Righty-ho. Language, did you have anything further? I mean, I can walk through just about every topic you guys are interested in at this point. Uh, If you want, we can start the the day. It's easier with specific. Yeah. yeah, of course. Let's have a closer look at the Izium salient because many people have been interested in it in recent days and also the progress or literally the very, very incremental progress Russian troops have made in order to make sure that they are more easily visible in the open field. It's funny you mention that um, it, because I think we've had a few people here talk about how you don't have to fight the enemy everywhere at every time. You do have the right to choose your own battles and you should probably choose the battles that are going to be most advantageous for you. And make no mistake, Russia still possesses tremendous mechanized and armored forces, um, especially in the east. So as a result, if you have to choose to fight Russia in a tiny village of 100 people next to open fields with nothing more than maybe one-story buildings while they're rushing you with 30 to 40 tanks, as we've seen up near Kremina, maybe that's a bad time because they'll just kill you with artillery and then they'll burn everything left with their tanks. And you might get a couple, but you're going to lose a lot of people. Or you pull back to forests, and now tanks aren't having as good a time. Or you pull back to forests near rivers on hills, and now the tanks are having a really bad time. Or you pull back to towns near forests on rivers and hills, and now the tanks are starting to wonder if they really want to go through with this. And that's what we've seen more towards the direction of Barvinkov, as well as on the Lyman axis. There was an attempt by Ukrainian forces um, north of Sloviansk directly to push up to the town of Oskil along the Oskil River. That attempt uh, with the resupply of Russian forces coming in from the northeast appears to have been halted. Um, unfortunately, they weren't able to quite cut off the uh, line of access to Izium. However, Ukrainian forces, you know, look, we're, it's better to live to fight another day than to die stupidly. And so they organized an effective fighting retreat past another town of Oleksandrivka down uh, towards the town of Yarova and Sosnov. The, that's a Y-A-R-O-V-A. There's some rivers in the area. Um, they're into more of a forested area. And it appears that they're trying to link up a number of defensive positions in order to forestall any Russian attack from the flanks there. Um, but there's a lot of forest and marshy areas. Uh, in this region of Ukraine and Russian forces, which really consistently rely on their armored vehicles in order to accomplish anything, are going to be at a disadvantage there for what I hope are obvious reasons to some of our listeners. Um, It's a lot harder to fight when you can't see people, and it's a lot harder to fight when you can't see people and your tank is stuck in the mud. So uh, beyond that, (laughs) the Ukrainian forces, however, to the north of Izium, there continues to be a fairly strong push. Um, it's actually a little comical. Um, there's a town called Chervoni Donets, which is uh, really close to the MO3 highway. 
down towards Izium. Ukrainian forces have gotten very close there. And uh, it's actually very much within range of their artillery to the point where Russia really only has one or two major roads now that lead into Izium, the whole northern axis, unless they want to somehow drive their stuff up towards Chuhiv, where the front lines are directly with Ukraine, and then drive it down while they're being shelled by Ukrainian forces who have gotten within range, it's not a good time. So the more of these supply lines they're able to menace, the more and the fact that if they can blow some more of these bridges, then the ability to get supplies to Izium will be reduced, if not necessarily cut off. And if I take away 30% of your food and bullets and fuel and whatnot, you're going to have an outsized effect. Uh, it's not going to look well. On the flip side, there's Russian forces almost due south of them. It's, I don't want to say it's comical because it is a war and people are dying. But just as the Ukraine forces are pushing east in this finger, the, Ukraine, the Russian forces appear to be trying to push west in a similar finger near the town of, uh, I want to say it's uh, Protopopivka. Uh, P-R-O-T-O-P-O-P-I-V-K-A. They built a pontoon bridge there today. Seems like they're trying to push towards the T-2121 highway. Um, I don't really know where they think they're going to go after that uh, because that's not a major resupply zone um, for the Russian, for the Ukraine forces to either the north or the south. It does seem like they're overextending themselves quite a bit. Um, however, we've also seen some statements in uh, the Northeast, and it's difficult to verify because of what these are, that Russian forces will go into a town that Ukraine forces have pulled back from, take a bunch of videos, show themselves setting up flags, and then leave before nightfall. So that's a very difficult claim to verify because you're, of course, going to see videos of Russian troops in town, um, and it's difficult to have you know the evidence that they're not in town, right? But if anybody has more information on that, I'd love to see it. It does appear that Russia's uh, forces are degraded and they're really nervous about being caught out at night, especially in some of these more heavily forested areas, because they uh, Russia does not possess good night fighting capability. Yeah, Ukraine owns the night, obviously. Now, let's have a little look. I mean, uh, you remember that a few days ago, like essentially eight days ago, we already talked about this, that uh, Rushuvacha which is essentially at the northern end, that's the P-79, the road Craig and I uh, like so much and you've looked at many times. So uh, the Russian troops have made uh, their effort from uh, Izium going through Kamyanka, then taking Western turn. They have now been pursuing this literally day by day. They have a mechanized, uh, actually two mechanized infantry divisions, the, what's it, the 423rd Guards, the 40th Guards, and then they have uh, two armor divisions, or sorry, we should say battalion tactic groups, of course. Two armor, meaning the 13th Guard and the 4th Guard. And they have not made it past what is the second uh, territorial defense unit, the UVZ. And that's a larger infantry uh, division, actually, but still, they have not made that approach. So we are looking at two mechanized infantry battalion tactic groups and two armor battalion tactical groups and they can't get past that infantry division then if you go further in, into that isium salient in the open space Brajivka, uh, sorry, Brajkivka, uh, there's yet another airborne assault uh, battalion tactical group of the russians facing the 81st uh, air assault of uh, the ukrainians and they have not made any gains 
The only gain there is, is currently by a mechanized infantry division, uh, sorry, battalion tactics going to Kurulka, which uh, we said already, but they're hitting. If anybody looks at their Google Maps or Google Earth Pro, you can actually see that essentially, if you look at uh, the beautiful little space between what is Nova Dimitrivka and Kurulka, this is yet again between two rivulets and ridges with a lot of forest, there's open space, fields, vast shooting galleries, quite literally. And right down in the south is the third armor of Ukraine. There's no way for them through it. The same is if you go then uh, along that corridor, which everybody has been looking at, the um, which uh, strips off the P-79 from Izium down the MO3, it goes to Dovenke. And Dovenke, uh, there they are standing with their assault division pretty much right uh, on a foresty ridge. They haven't made any progress. They've been repelled by an, a unit which we don't even see on any map, of which we know nothing. Let's assume it's recon. And then you have uh, their mechanized infantry division. Sorry, battalion tactical group. I can't get used to these bastards. Uh, actually, two of them, the first guard and the second uh, motorized guard. And they have not made any progress against a small 15th Slavic regiment of Ukrainian infantry. In its defense, the Ukrainian armed forces in the salient are showing not just bravery, but exceptionally good planning and fantastic delay action. This is a masterclass in infantry tactics, and uh, it's unique as to how they dish out the attrition to the other side up until long-range artillery arrives in place, because on not a single map which we have in the public space, we can see that. So in that regard, this is an interesting uh, space. This is a very interesting battle. And that's what I was highlighting. I have some questions from the audience. I can hit real quick if that's all right. Um, just I think they're, they're good questions, but they can be answered in fairly short order. Let me pull it up. Um, ba, 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 ba. From Pinky. Um, how far along is Ukraine integrating all the lethal aid they've received from the West? If they bring all this to bear, will we see more and more victories in the East? It's an ongoing process. We know that there is some aid, such as uh, you know, shoulder-mounted, shoulder-fired uh, anti-tank weapons that have more easily propagated into the east. There's some reports of the artillery, which we know is in Ukraine at this point, according to the State Department of the U.S., is being utilized. To what degree is unclear, and frankly, we don't really need to know. Uh, some of the armored vehicles and whatnot that we've seen, uh, armored ambulances, uh, promises of other stuff, are starting to filter into the area. But again, we don't necessarily need to know all of them. It does appear, though, that the Ukrainians are rapidly adapting to and utilizing as effectively as they can the aid and arms and vehicles they're receiving from Western nations, which is, to you know, the second point, uh, we should see more victories in the East as a result. Right now, a victory for Ukraine is really blunting this Izium offensive because I don't see how after this, um, because it takes time to organize troops and get supply lines up, if they push back and they take Izium, then they can fair, I don't want to say fairly easily, but more easily than in other locations, start uh, forcing Russian soldiers back to natural borders such as rivers and what have you, turn this into a bit of an artillery duel, 
And then with increased uh, artillery from the West and some other systems, they can hopefully win those artillery duels. Because if you can shoot faster and more accurately and at a longer range, then, well, you're going to do a lot better than the other guy. Is it accurate to say to a layperson observing the war casually that Ukraine is winning the war? What will the Ukrainian map and the forces on both sides look like if nothing drastic changes? I think it's fair to say the Ukraine is winning the war. Um, this, is, you know, this is kind of what winning looks like. And sometimes winning involves losing, you know, pulling back from areas that you know are not defensible. Because winning doesn't mean stopping and fighting to die in every single mud hole. It means being able to destroy as much of the enemy while taking as little loss as yourself. So at this point, you know, just looking from a very 10,000 foot view, Russian forces were unable to complete their initial objectives of a lightning storm raid across the country. They were pushed out of the areas to the north of Kiev, and Kiev is no longer threatened by anything besides long-range missiles. Um, Odessa is at this point almost certainly not threatened by landing troops, even if they were to land, which I don't see being likely. There's a tremendous amount of force in Odessa, um, and Russia has had very minimal gains since really early April, um, if that, in the east. And in fact, they've been losing territory day in and day out, especially around some of the major urban pockets. And we continue to see degradation of Russian morale, degradation of Russian equipment, etc. It, it's a long war. It is far from over. The Ukrainians are far from having won it. But at this point, things are looking a lot better than they did during those opening you know, four to five days of this war where there was a real concern. Um, what do we know about Rubizne and Severodonetsk, legendary holdout operation? Um, they're doing good work there. Severodonetsk has been shelled almost nonstop repeatedly. The main road in and out of town is basically locked down by Russian artillery. Uh, I don't believe there's any power in the city, nor has there been for some time. Um, there are some units there. They're holding out bravely. The Russians do not seem interested in pushing into Severodonetsk until they have completely encapsulated it from the north and the south. It lies along a river, so it looks like they're trying to pin it in from three sides. Thus far, they've been unsuccessful. Rubizna to the north, very capable combat unit there. Um, NATO trained, very professional. Sometimes we get some info from them they uh, publicly, and they do very good work. We've seen reports from the enemies fighting them there, and the enemies just get slaughtered. Um, basically, they came in, they actually got the drop on the Ukrainians, but they didn't know what to do for 40 minutes until the Ukrainians spotted them and decided that they were going to send some artillery their way, killed about, inflicted about 30% casualties, wounded, killed, um, damaged to material. And then it's just been, and then the Ukrainians pulled back from the northern half of the city, set up firing positions, and have just been laying waste to the Russians. And even when the Russians do manage to overrun a position or force the Ukrainians out, and now they're in what they think is a big, strong concrete bunker that people have been shooting them out of for two weeks, then that's when the Ukrainians pull the tanks out of their back pocket, go in and flatten that building with everybody in it, and then they repeat the whole process again the next block over. It's a very, very bad time for the Russians. And it's a very tough and challenging situation for the Ukraine troops there. But so far, they appear to be holding out very bravely. Um, Russia does not do well in urban warfare. I think to, there's an argument to be made that no one really does. But Russia especially just sucks at it. Um, and then the final question, is it true the Russian army is currently afraid of the Ukrainian army? As a whole, it's a difficult question to ask. Um, we know that they're afraid of certain aspects, specifically their drone strike capabilities, um, concerns that they're being.
language you dropped. We lost our language. Okay, whilst we've done this, uh, um, there he is. Yeah, but yeah, so they're afraid of certain capabilities and it's more a sense of... We regained our capability. Yeah. We regained our capability to speak a language. Please call us. So real quick, yeah, because I see there's a lot of hands up and I don't want to talk over people online. Um, there's a le there's a sense of despair, which I think there's a larger sort of Russian background to that, sort of Russian enemy, as it were. But a lot of folks saying, hey, everybody's getting killed. They're having to ship the bodies back at night in small quantities so that it doesn't become apparent how many soldiers we're losing. They're waiting for days at a time to send bodies back home. As a result, these bodies are rotting before they get back to, you know, retrieval centers, mort morticians. And there's this sense of what are we doing here? You know, we're not winning these, you know, Ukrainians, you know, that we were supposed to run over in three days. And then we were all going to get a bunch of fancy houses in Crimea and, you know, have, you know, willing Ukrainian women to be our wives because we save them from Nazis. Turns out the reality on the ground is just a little different. And uh, life comes at you fast and it's come at a lot of these Russian soldiers even faster. So I wouldn't say they're afraid, though there is some definite elements of fear, but this sort of capitulation, if you will, of none of this matters. What are we doing here? Morale is shot. Um, beyond that, I think that's the bulk of the questions. And then there's a couple more saying thank you um, to our hosts. So to Osin1988, M, Axel, Imperius, Walter, of course, you know, thank you. And make sure to send those guys some positive messages. They have to deal with a lot of BS and just a little bit of love, a little bit of a friendly word. It can mean a lot. But I see we have a couple hands up and I think I've about exhausted as much as I can monologue on that topic. Thank you, language. Much appreciated. So, uh, M. Ryan Marwan. Yeah, I have a. I had a bit of a snarky comment. Uh, Stop Revengeism was asking about those villages, and I thought that maybe two planes are flying straight from Moscow into the village to refuel, and then they would take off with uh, two platoons and go to Vienna, control Vienna, maybe control a bakery, get some coal songs fly them all the way back to Moscow, but that's just me. Oh, inside baseball. <laughs> all right, chaps. Ryan. Good evening, everyone. Sorry about that. That was a bad joke in bad taste. Ryan, please go no, ahead. No, it was funny. It was funny. <laughs> it actually kind of reminded me of those conscripts that tried to roll into uh, Kiev on the day of the invasion with their uh, dress blues and I think that didn't work very well for them. Yeah, well, you can take Hostomol, but you can take Vienna. Please, Ryan, go ahead. You can take Vienna, but you can't take the croissant out of the man. So, Ryan, please go on. <laughs> Might as well just fly into the Vatican and take the Pope. Ryan, please go ahead before I kill myself. <laughs> but I was partially right about Vienna. They didn't Shut invade up, Odessa. Shut up. <laughs> now you're getting off into the weeds again. Um, I had a quick question. I read a couple of reports about uh, the Kremlin maybe amping up security on some rumors about some disgruntled Russian officers and FSB officers uh, maybe staging a coup. Is that uh, just bumbling and palace intrigue or are there any teeth to that story? Probably palace intrigue and more rumors than anything factual. There's been a lot of rumors that have come out. I'll try and hit on three of them, including that. Um, a really good application for anything. It doesn't necessarily just have to be this war. Uh, 
just look at what makes the most sense, right? Because the simple answer, by and large, is usually the most accurate. It's not always the right one, but it'll get you closest to the truth because we're not super complex creatures, right? Um, there's been reports that Putin is going in for surgery on May 9th for cancer and it's no big deal. That's false, that there's no evidence to support that. The Daily Mail should not be your main trusted source of news, please. That's like me reading the National Enquirer here in the States and getting ready to see Bat Boy outside my window. It's just don't follow anything from there. Another statement, and there's been more statements on it now. So this one I have to say is iffy that Putin is going to formally announce war on May 9th at the victory parade and call for a mass conscription, recruiting mobilization efforts. The initial source of this comes from the Ukraine, uh, the UK Minister of Defense, who made a statement saying that he felt this could happen. And then about 20, 30 seconds later said, oh, but I have no information on it. Admittedly, the man is better informed than any of us here will ever be. And it's possible it was a bit of a gaffe. There's been some other incidental statements about, you know, looking for more, trying to get quotas for higher food supplies and whatnot in certain military districts that would lead one to believe that there might be some kind of mobilization action. But that's not confirmed yet. And I just would urge a little bit of caution there. Um, we have heard, however, that uh, the Russian forces assigned to the victory parade have had to be reduced because of um, the necessity of some of these vehicles, especially missile launch platforms, uh, being used in Ukraine. There's actually a pretty funny little uh, bingo card I'll probably put up at some point that you guys can all watch and you know drink to when the parade goes through. See how many see how many Z's there are and whatnot, and you know this propaganda display. And then, as far as a third regarding amping up security because of a palace coup it's very unlikely putin has tremendous control over his security services that's really his bread and butter here um and that includes the fsb the gru you're it's unlikely you're going to see some kind of you know palace coup on victory day but just hearing that and saying that especially for a paranoid authoritarian leader that's enough to get you thinking you go well you know, Yevgeny over there, he didn't laugh at my joke nearly as hard as I think he should have. I think he's plotting something. Take him out back, you know, drop him in a hole. So there is some benefit to even rep repeating those rumors because it gets inside people's heads and that can lead them to make rash and emotionally compromised decisions. Hopefully that answers your question. It did. Thank you. Marwan. Uh, hi guys, uh, good evening. Uh, I saw today some news that the 777 uh are already in use. I think it was uh, someone from the Pentagon, if not the Secretary of Defense, I'm not sure actually. But uh, yeah, do you guys think true. that uh, that might have been behind some of the uh, counterattacks east of Kharkiv? Seems a little likely. Likely. We have uh, no idea what the limits would be as to where these uh, have been deployed. One can only, one can only hope that uh, it includes Kharkiv, uh, because it would obviously help with the cleanup, but it's quite likely that they are all across the front line because there was sufficient capacity in that regard. Um, we'll monitor it, and as soon as we can report something which we have, uh, so to say, geolocated and uh, it's public knowledge, I shall be glad to make sure that our chaps here highlight it.
John, please go ahead. Hi, uh, thanks, Language, for uh, outstanding updates. Uh, the work you do is incredible, and um, I just wanted to say that. Uh, <clears throat> I had a question about back to Rubijna and uh, Severs Donetsk, because it's quite a complex situation in that they are the other side of the river, uh, and behind them there's that this kind of advances going on uh on Papozna and then to the north and i just wondered sort of realistically what what uh the sort of <clears throat> difficulties might be going forward there's one road that seems to be a supply road that's potentially quite vulnerable if uh if if Papozna falls which does seem to be a possibility uh, at what point do the do does Ukraine have to make some difficult decisions about pulling back from that, potentially? Because notwithstanding the heroic efforts to defend the town, uh, is there, is there a, a sort of some difficult decisions to be made about being cut off at some point there? Because if they capture Poznan, they're only about maybe 10 or 12 kilometres from the supply road over open country, it seems. I've no idea how all that works. I'm just thinking... In a way, Rubizna and Severodonetsk have been a little bit overlooked in the media. There's obviously something heroic happening there. And I was just um, a bit concerned about it going forward if if the if the advances behind them are successful, if that if that question makes sense. So if I'm hearing you correctly, the concern is about Popazna and Rubizna, which are respectfully to the south mm. and north of Severodonetsk and the supply lines that run near them. If the Russian advances are successful, they could strangle Severodonetsk, and what would be the outcome of that? And is that likely? Is that more yeah, or less where you're answer? There's an advance from the south through Popozna, and there's one from the north, south, heading towards like Siversk, and there's one right, there's one main supply road going into Severodonetsk and, and Rubizna that sits right in the middle of those two advances. How 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 much danger is, is that? It's possible. I wouldn't say it's likely. Um, there's some pretty well-armored uh, mechanized units, specifically in the vicinity of Papazna. Um, this is reported by the Ukrainian military. I'm not going to surprise anyone when I say that there's two mechanized brigades and another defense brigade between Papazna and Artemvisk. And then to the north along sort of the main road, there's another tank brigade action. We haven't seen a tremendous amount of tank brigades uh, in this war, but the Ukrainians have found uh, them to be devastatingly effective, especially in urban warfare when you use them correctly and you don't just drive them past windows where guys can lean out and blow you to hell. Uh, around Rubizna, there's a very competent um, National Guard unit there, uh, one of that has extensive training, extensive experience. Um, and there's a couple others. There's a Donbass battalion in the region, just you know, in Severodonetsk, as well as another defense brigade or uh, two. I believe the 128th Mountain Brigade is also in the region. And uh, if we had Colonel Spencer here or any other Army Rangers in the audience, uh, they'll tell you that if you know how to fight in mountains, you can you can fight just about anywhere um, within reason. So you've got some very capable forces there holding the front. Um, I would honestly rate that as my biggest area of interest slash concern because they've been holding out heroically in these cities even in papazna as the russians continue to push through it 
um, you know, and they, there's video drone footage from Russian propaganda TV, which incidentally shows just the sheer destruction level on this town. But the fact that they were able to at least stop them in Papazna, whereas originally it appeared the Russians just wanted to sweep through it on the highway to the south of town, and they've been grinding it out there for weeks now instead. I mean, even if these towns fall, I mean, Rubizna is a bit more different because you'd, they'd have to fall back to the uh, suburbs of Sverdonetsk. But Papazna, even if Papazna falls, there's other towns along the way that they can hold out in. And there's no, it, it doesn't seem like it's something that's going to happen imminently in either of those areas. And there are very combat capable units there who have done tremendous work on the ground based on some of the uh, pictures and videos we've seen. So it's a concern, but it's not a panic, if that makes sense. Yeah, thanks. That's uh, that's really helpful. I wish those guys well out there because I think they're, it's clearly a important thing that's going on that's not really been covered that much in the media. So it's clearly a, a big, big thing that's happening there. So, yeah, uh, good luck to those guys. Amen to that. Thank you, John. Thank you, Language. Plamen? Thank you. Good evening, guys. Um, after having listened to the harsh realities of war you guys are discussing, may I take you to the uh, sort of the land of the fantasies? Um, <laughs> well, uh, and the subject is, um, I just saw somewhere a report about a, um, uh, let's say, a news or some discussion on Russian TV, uh, state TV, about um, how long it will take their nuclear strategic arsenal to hit, um, let's say, cities like Berlin, London, and Paris. Uh, I believe there was 106 seconds to Berlin and 200 to London and about the same to Paris. Um, so basically f trying to uh, create a little bit of a, uh, probably for internal uh, consumption only, to straighten the morale and, uh, you know, rally the troops and uh, uh, demonstrate strength internally. But what I've seen is that um, some trolls on the internet have picked up on this um, and even some, again, French political parties starting to use it as an excuse to, you know, um, create those uh, peace protests. Probably you haven't seen it, but there, there were a couple of small protests around Europe, I believe, especially Eastern Europe, um, <laughs> about peace, which, you know, it's in, in, in principle support for Russia, full stop, uh, supporting the aggression. Um, how do you guys think, uh, is that uh, something, or how do you guys would, would recommend to, to counter those, those things? I mean, it's, it's laughable. I'm not talking out of concern uh, about the nuclear stuff. I'm <laughs> talking about uh, I'm talking about the, or I'm concerned about the propaganda value of this thing, which obviously could could be used to scare people, uh, especially yeah, well in Europe, uh, and and try to gather some mass around those peace protests, well, quote unquote peace protests, uh, protests. All right. Uh, <laughs> hi, Plemon. Apologies if I have drawn you too far away from the. From... No, it's all good. It's, it's it is just because this this war is, is fought. And that's it. It's enough. Well, that is true. That is sadly true. That's very true. But um, 
I think there's they still very active Russian propaganda and maybe the Ukraine is, is managing to to suppress the aggressor on the ground, but they are very, very active as, as far as I can see. I mean, I might be wrong, but they're still very active on the propaganda front and they're still having some access or some some uh, foothold in 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 the western societies that's that's what like what concerns me actually and uh, no no therefore I, I just in case in this case you just show shown the alternative your alternative of so what that's how your peace looks like like mariupol this is the peace without uh, resisting ukraine uh, resisting to russia you will get this in europe no not in ukraine only everywhere so if you 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 marching for peace uh, watch picture from Mariupol. This is uh, unconditional peace. Looks like. All right, let's go to the next hand up. We have Christopher and Chris, and then Lucen. Go ahead. Oh yeah, hi everyone. Um, yeah, look, I just had a question that's been uh, kind of made me curious for a couple of days now. Um, there was this idea of potentially maybe Russia might declare war. And my question is really, um, what does it actually mean to declare war? You know, what does it actually change anything? Or at this point, given everything that's occurred since twenty fourth Feb uh, February, you know, is it just a formality? Um, does it change anything politically or militarily? Um, and why now um, and not earlier? Uh, is that just because of the time it takes to change the narrative to accommodate something like that? Okay, and I don't know if that was a question or a comment. I had to get off there for a second, but is there a follow-up? Oh, it's even a question, yeah. What, what, does, what does it actually mean to declare war and what's it going to change going forward? If they huh. do? So declaring war has certain legal implications that Russia has to, um, if it's admitting it, if it didn't want to declare war the first time, the question becomes why? Well, they don't want to treat combatants as prisoners of war where they have to actually give them rights. So in this case, sorry. So in this case, they, um, they, they would be beholden to the laws of armed conflict and also to Geneva conventions. So it doesn't help them any, but it might just be their way of trying to raise uh, a domestic uh, po popular uh, domestic support for the international uh, maritime traffic. Yeah, no, that's not what I was saying. But the, 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 I'm saying that it might be their their bet of raising the stakes. I'm not sure um, what other factors in, but jump in, Murad, whatever, wherever you're talking about. Because I'll be doing so well abiding to the rules of law as it is, right? <laughs> Oh yeah, for sure not. I mean, this this whole everyone asks, what is what does it mean? What are the what what are the Russians thinking? I don't think they're thinking. I think they're just doing, and they're letting Lavrov try to pick up the pieces. I mean, Lavrov now has no credibility. Never, never really did. But especially after he just blamed the Holocaust on Jewish people and Hitler being Jewish. I mean, he's pretty much a laughing stock to the whole world of uh, in, in 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 foreign affairs and uh, diplomacy. So. What can you do? Any follow-up there, Chris, or we're going to go to Lucien? Uh, I'm good, thanks, Jason. Put me down, too. No worries. Okay, Lucien. Hi. Um, thank you guys so much. Uh, this is an amazing space and community, and I'm so grateful for it. Uh, the thing I've been really wanting to understand is um, when – is there any way of assessing or are you able to speculate about when Ukrainian forces will be sort of fully loaded – 
in terms of the aid that's the military aid that's now been committed? When will they when will when will they be at full strength? Well, I would say they're at full strength already. I mean they're 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 fully I mean, they don't have all the weapons that have been offered, but they're they're doing, you know, they're fighting the battle. They're able to defend themselves against the Russians. Um, we're never going to see them fully armed because they can always use more. But uh, they're they're holding their own. They're defending their positions. The Russians are treating themselves at great cost. So I'm not sure really how to answer that question because I'm not sure there's an exact answer for it. Anyone on the panel want to jump in? M. Osent, Axel. No, you nailed it, Yoda. So there's not, in terms of um, you know heavy artillery and and um, and loitering munitions and things like that that have been you know that have been committed and 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 training that's going on. That's just they're pretty much where they're going to be. There's not sort of there's not likely to be an even more um, supplied version of the Ukrainian army. No, now. they'll get more supplies for sure. But the question you asked, are they like fully, uh, um, what'd you say? Was it well, I, didn't mean to, I didn't mean to say fully loaded in the sense that they couldn't be more loaded, but I meant like, is there, given the current commitments that have been made, um, when will all of that be, you know, available and, and sort of supply lines established, uh, and and sort of if you know that when, when given what's been so far promised and you know and the training when that's sort of all going to be there and available and 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 in use yeah. would you guess may 9th 3 p.m <laughs> uh <laughs> you can't you, know, you can't know it's impossible yeah I mean, it's, so it's so listen they've months. already the, the, no, it's days. I mean, the, the, oh, the material is already on the ground, half of it. I mean, they, they were moving stuff before they said it. They didn't say it and then just started packing it up. Uh, the Americans have to get equipment from all over parts, different parts of the United States. And they have to prepare it, check it, uh, verify the equipment. They've got to load it. They've got to fly it. Um, if they don't, if, you know, they need to do training, they'll do training. Some of it's just driving, you know, APCs. Um, but, yeah, they, they're going to they're gonna have it all laid down, and they're already doing it right now. And Ukrainians are training in several countries across Europe on different platforms, and they're probably doing two, three day, four, you know, two to five day crash courses where, where they're just getting fire hose fed all the really important parts, all the important details. Um, and that's it. Maybe even maybe even uh, recently retired uh, army personnel or uh, who, who, who are volunteered to go over and make sure everything goes well. Who knows? Right. Wink, wink. Right. right. So well, thank you. That's great. You're welcome. That's, that's great to hear. And thanks again so much. I appreciate it. You can drop me down. Okay, no, you just go to that right corner and click on uh, go to listener or something. It's better for okay. the space. I'll apparently. come up and come back on. Thanks. No worries. Okay. Um, all right, go ahead, uh, Christopher, and then Marwan. So I've been seeing, this is my question. I've been seeing things about transition, about transition where Russian forces were moving the families of the soldiers that are there. Does that have any clout right now? I'm not sure what you mean by clout, but yeah, so Russia's playing little games in Transnistria. Yeah, if they're evacuating some of the families of of uh, Russians there, that would make sense. Um, they've got about 1,500 troops that could probably do some live fire exercises. I doubt they can do much else. They're not considered really good troops that are in Transnistria. 
Um, but every Russia, Russia still has the behavior, like behavior of whatever it does should scare everyone. So because of the Russian army, right? So um, that, that deterrence factor is long gone. Um, whatever they're doing there, if it's going to be followed up with some kind of invasion of Moldova by some amphibious landing, I mean, you know, hey, you know what I mean? If that's your plan, try it. It's a horrible plan. Um, not much ado. I don't think, I, I think there's much ado about nothing on that one. Uh, if anyone else has anything else to add to that, just jump in. Does that answer your question there, Christopher? Yes. Awesome. Marwanis, go ahead. Uh, I, my question is about uh, supply lines uh, coming in from the northeast, uh, the Russian supply lines coming in from the northeast to Severodonetsk uh, and uh, Izium, uh, Rubizhna, uh, that area. Do they have access to train lines in that area or do they have to depend on their uh, trucks and transport vehicles? Uh, right. When you say northeast, uh, which corridors do you mean? There are six. Pick a couple. Um, uh, I'm not sure, actually. Uh, Gen- what do you mean by corridor? Just general vicinity, actually. I don't think he's talking specifically. Okay, well, there's uh, if you take uh, if you take the northeast, you can take everything which goes from what is the M4 corridor along the line. So this is uh, the one which goes. If you go on a map, I don't. If you have a map or um, say, a I'm on Google Pro. Yeah, go. Earth okay, Pro. fine. The M4 is going from Pavlovsk all the way down to Rostov na Okay, and from there you can see that there are six railway corridors and trucking corridors going directly uh, across the country into the areas which you are looking at. So if you want to uh, have those corridors, you need obviously you need to make sure that there's rail corridors. There's a rail center at Luhansk, which is quite important, which they have under control for a long time. There's Kamensk and Donetsk itself, where they've been for a long time. And uh, they can, uh, from Milorovo, supply through their trucks uh, continuously down to Luhansk, which is what they've been doing. And if you want to go further to the north, there's a couple of items, which uh, a couple of uh, areas which are, have always been difficult. This is Markivka, which they can't really reach. It's a supplementary road, which even in the Second World War has been a big issue for them. But Starobilsk and Bilovotsk are the two centers which you would typically see. So the PO7, if that tells you anything, as a road, which is what they've been using in order to supply currently both their mechanized infantry as well as the armor divisions, uh, sorry, armor BTGs close to Rubizhne, as well as the Chechens who are sitting there doing their TikTok games. So uh, do they have those corridors? Yes, they do. Uh, do they rely heavily on the railroad corridors? Yes, they do. Uh, are they able to spread it? Yes, at the moment they are. Have they actually tightened up their logistics? Yes, they have. Are they very good at it? No, they are not. Will that improve? How should I know? So we haven't seen any of the stupidity that was around Kiev with the 40-mile oh, long convoy and stuff like that. No, no, we have seen a lot of stupidity, but it's very well operated in a territory which they have already occupied and therefore controlled for a long period of time. So it's significantly more difficult to find ways to 
by means of light infantry attack or target them. There's very few roads which you can pre-sight as easily. You cannot reach by means of both uh, long-range artillery as well as missiles uh, from the Ukrainian side, those areas. There is no possibility to contest the area by means of uh, going in on air raids because you just can't do that. Otherwise, you get shut down. So that really doesn't make any sense. And if you look at the battle lines, um, of that area, what they need to supply currently is uh, the whole area, Izium, Lozove, and of course, Robizhe and Severodonetsk, which they can do. For that, they have enough rail corridors. What they are trying to do is, of course, to take the area between Izium and Liman in order to then have a significantly better rail access all, uh, all the way down the line to Severodonetsk, which they haven't managed to do quite yet. Hopefully they will never do. No, man. I would hope so. Amen, Marwan. Very specific questions. Thank you. Alex? Uh, before Alex goes, hey, if you're in the channel, please put your hand up. A lot of speakers want to chat. Um, just if you have a question or comment, raise your hand. If not, just go to the listener so we can get other people a chance to speak. So I'm looking at you, Glass, Stop, uh, Redentism, MRA, uh, Ellie, Fass, and... Uh, Oh, no, he bumped down. Okay, go ahead, Alex. Uh, yeah, uh, good evening or good morning, everybody. Um, there's been a bit of talk about uh, certain statements that the Russian foreign ministry has made and, and Lavrov and Sergei Lavrov have made. Um, and there was also some talk about Katerov and things that he said recently in the last sort of 12 hours. Um, it's often said that a message that isn't meant for you won't make sense to you. Um, so I'm just wondering who the Russians might be aiming those messages at. And well, um, what are the messages? Why don't you tell for the audience? Oh, sure. The no are? worries. So Sergei Lavrov said that um, basically it came, I can't remember the exact details, but Sergei Lavrov has, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, have basically said that um, uh, Hitler, Hitler was a Jew. Um, the Jews killed themselves during the Holocaust, and that Israel. It happens. That, and Israel <laughs> and Israel is supporting neo-Nazis, um, and um, I'm not exactly sure what Katerov has been saying, but um, given um, given um, that probably as, 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 Katerov has been saying, ooh, ooh, ah, ooh, ooh, he's a clown. Well, possibly, but given that M pointed out that he does have some significance in um, certain uh, communities in the Middle East. Um, I was just wondering what, what, who, who they're talking to and um, does it mark a shift in the, the information, like the mis-dis warfare and, um, and is it significant? Yeah, good point. I'm going to start backwards and go to M. So Kadyrov can dress up like a Muslim. Uh, he doesn't speak for Muslims. His brand of Islamism um, it's, it's whatever Putin allows them to do, right? So when Putin wanted to be nice, nice to Israel, you didn't have, uh, Kadyrov, uh, ranting about, you know, crazy things vis-a-vis -vis Israel just because his master said no. Now his master is changing, right? And just so he doesn't represent Islam, he's a clown, um, and, uh, and he's a very violent psychopath, just like Putin. Um, as, as for Lavrov, uh, so a lot of people made accusations that Israel wasn't helping out. Um, there's now talk of deploying the Iron Dome to Ukraine uh, in Israel. Um, they would need 
hundreds of, of units to provide the protection. Israel is a very small country. You can walk across Israel uh, in less than half a day. Um, you don't need as many iron domes. Uh, I think uh, one defense analyst in Israel said they would need 300 um, iron domes, which is probably 30. <laughs> I'm not going to say the numbers, but multiple times more than Israel even has. So, uh, and I'm sure they have extras, but they, they, they don't have enough that would actually make a difference. It's, it's a shield. It's a dome. It's not meant to do little area defense. It's supposed to be a larger area. But um, anyway, so the bottom line is Israel has been helping on the on the ground quietly with, you know, first of all, the first week of the war, enormous uh, field hospitals set up. Uh, they were the first on the ground, actually. They went in through Moldova. Um, then they have a huge logistics support hub in southern Ukraine. In fact, everything that goes to Ukraine from Romania goes through Israeli hands. They have a huge, huge logistics train and background all over there, but they were quiet about it publicly because, uh, as I said uh, earlier in the in the space a couple of weeks ago, many weeks ago, uh, Russia holds the balance of power in Syria. They have their air defense laid out. Um, uh, Israel's risk averse doesn't want to have any of its planes shot down or even threats of it. And uh, so basically, Russia is the power broker amongst, name it, like 50 uh, terrorist groups all hanging out in Syria supporting Assad. So they don't want to poke him publicly because they just, you know, they want to make sure the Middle East is stable. The idea of having the, the Middle East kick off into a regional conflict with Hezbollah in southern Lebanon uh, and Israel is not good for anybody, let alone the people of Lebanon. So Israel's trying to try to walk a tightrope uh, with respect to Russia. However, they've obviously been, well, not obvious because a lot of people don't know, but they've been doing a lot on the ground. There are actual units um, fighting in the Ukrainian army. Israel's home to about almost 2 million uh, Jewish people who are either from Ukraine or, or southern Russia and have strong connections to Ukraine, speak both Ukrainian and Russian fluently. And um, many people after their service um, have, uh, have, uh, have gone over to Ukraine to help. The number's in the thousands and thousands and thousands. Um, and they're doing signal intelligence stuff. They're doing communications. They're doing fighting. They have special forces guys who probably are retired, quote-unquote, operating there's some links uh, if you go to the times of israel there's some videos um that were leaked uh, of them in uh, in in giving statements so what does that mean it means that putin already knew uh, and he expected like most countries would help ukraine or eventually realized most countries would help ukraine and um now that it's more public surprise surprise all of a sudden lavrov's spouting off neo-nazi anti-semitic talking points He's doing it to, to, to piss off the Israelis. It doesn't, all it's done is made them pissed, more pissed themselves. And now they're more able to openly and publicly um, support Ukraine. Uh, so the mask is off, so to speak. However, about three weeks ago, there's a very famous uh, Jewish pilgrimage site in uh, central Ukraine called Uman, U-M-A-N. And Uman was bombed, uh, <laughs> was bombed, uh, you know, viciously, uh, all that's there is a grave of a very famous rabbi. Um, so that was there. Uh, you know, some people speculate that was done just to, as a slight towards Israel. Um, probably not the best people to want to piss off. Uh, the Israelis have been very careful to try to be diplomatic because they, they don't want, you know, Syria to kick off. But I think the understanding is the Russians are in no position to ignite a conflict in, in Syria. Uh, it just they don't have the they don't have the ability and the Israelis will just probably destroy whatever whatever is floating around there in and around they're just very careful not to poke the bear uh, mask is off though 
I hope that it <coughs> explains a little bit of it and probably Lavrov's entire, um, you know, rant about Hitler and neo-Nazis. It's just, it's just meant to insult the Israelis. Uh, it's stupid. Uh, he's embarrassed himself, you know, to no end. Um, M wants to jump in. Go ahead. Yeah, well, you answered one part of the question, which is what's happening in real uh, life, the real world. So this is exactly what Yehuda said, that the Russian government is trying to piss off the Israelis. They have their own calculations. But what Putin is also doing is that he's catering to all the anti-Semitic propaganda that has been propagating throughout the Arab world for decades and decades and decades. The guy wears his watch on his right wrist. Maybe he's a lefty, maybe he's trying to signal Muslims that he cares about the blessing of time by wearing his watch on his right hand. Also, by saying that Again, this is complete and utter stupidity, and it's completely false. The Jews are the biggest anti-Semites in the world. He's basically playing to the uh, Jews run the world conspiracy theory that the majority of the populations of Arab countries and Muslim countries believe in. How this will play out, I don't know. Why is he doing it? Probably it's part of the misinformation, disinformation campaign uh, targeted against the Arab world in order to portray him as the protector of Orthodox Christianity against the international cabal that is trying to convert everyone and destroy all moral values and family values and whatnot. Is that good to go there, uh, my friend? Are you good? Makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, thank you very much, both of you. No worries, Alex. Okay, we're going to go to glass uh, E, and then we have uh, Aram. If your hand's not up, we're going to put you down to uh, the listeners' uh, group. So put your hand up if you have a question. Go ahead, Glass. Hello. Uh, I just have three questions. First one, have we seen anything about unmasking policies that the Russians are using for artillery? I've seen a lot of uh, videos of drone use on individual fire positions. Is any any gunners in the room that uh, can have a guess uh, what the unmasking policy is and if they're moving their guns after they shoot. And the next one, uh, joint force coordination. Um, some of these precision strikes that are happening in Odessa and other places, are we seeing any uh, uh, these precision strikes enabling maneuver? And my last one that is completely uh, not involved with the rest of these is just uh, Wagner Group around the world. Now, recently, I just we all saw the what the French released about Wagner Group in Mali. Is there any other news of Wagner Group in other places in Africa getting rolled up by uh, Americans or anybody else? That's all I have. No follow ups, and I'll bump myself back down. Thanks, thanks, buddy. Uh, I don't know about the the, the Wagner worldwide, uh, just because I'm too busy with this. But uh, if anyone wants to answer, I'm not a gunner. So if anyone wants to jump in there and answer Glass's question, please do. Any gunners? Axel M, go ahead. No, I'm a comms guy. You know that. Axel, maybe you have uh, some insight? I can only recount what our boys have been saying, that essentially the, the uh, Russian friends have been utterly bad in that regard. and. Uh, that we're very happy that the Ukrainians are getting better sensor capacity for counter battery. So, but other than that, no, I'm not a gunner. I just love artillery. Oh, sent uh, 88, anything?
Glass, sorry about that. I don't know if folks can answer that. I'm busy. Just two sets. Give me pass on this one. I'm busy. Give no me worries. Glass, we'll we'll circle back to that. Okay, why don't you stick around so I remember, and then if we get CJ in here, we'll go over there. All right, we've got Iram and then Chase. Thank you so much for uh, this opportunity. Uh, my question is, uh, given the number of general and higher ranking army personnel losing their life uh, in Ukraine, uh, is there uh, some sort of uh, resistance uh, presented by these generals? I'm just hoping that uh, uh, some people in Russia, especially army uh, personnel are waking up to the reality of uh, how they are being led into a war, uh, you know, paved with um, lies. And uh, uh, they, uh, is there some sort of resistance, any semblance of rational thinking present in Russian army, um, uh, especially people in higher rank? And that's why perhaps they lost their lives. And uh, a second part is uh, given all the uh, you know, mass graves, when is international community or justice system can take any, um, uh, I don't know what kind of response uh, should be given. I mean, something needs to be done for this. I'm sorry. I'm just rambling. No, it's okay. Let's take a part in two questions, two parts. And I think Em's going to take it. Em, can you cover for about 20 minutes? And then Em, take the con there. Copy that. So the first part of the question, the Russian generals are rushing to the front line in order to lead because the plan is not going according to plan. And therefore, they are going to the front lines in order to make sure that the plan goes according to plan. Unfortunately, their operational security and personal security is compromised and therefore there is intelligence about their presence on the front lines, which is being passed to the Ukrainian armed forces who are seizing on the opportunity and targeting their locations and therefore uh, we're seeing more uh, high-ranking generals and high-ranking officers dying. So it is not up uh, to uh, a mutiny, per se, amongst uh, Russian forces or back home. And hopefully enough, their funerals and their obituaries will inform more Russians on the fact of, or on the realities on the battlefield in Ukraine that there are that they are losing uh, high-ranking officers. And the second part of your question was about uh, the global and the international community's response to the massacres being uh, carried out in Bucha and other Ukrainian cities. Well, it's a matter of coverage, and that's happening. Ukrainian uh, forces and Ukrainian authorities are discovering more and more atrocities committed by the Russian soldiers, and those are being covered by Western journalists as well as reported to the various organizations of the international community that have been uh, communicating those crimes and informing on those crimes to the peoples of all countries around the world who have access to free media. Now, how this will be pursued further on uh, in the future, it will be a war crime investigation, of course, and the International Criminal Court has announced a proper investigation or uh, an official investigation into the war crimes committed by the Russian forces in Ukraine. Sadly enough, uh, those investigations take time, uh, collecting accounts, uh, 
verifying the facts and finding witnesses and then bringing those responsible for those crimes to justice and giving them a fair trial where they have access to attorneys to defend them as well. So it's going to take time, but the international response to those crimes is already in motion. Uh, the Ukrainian response to those crimes is also already in motion. And hopefully uh, every single person who committed a crime against uh, unarmed civilians and innocents will be brought forward to justice and uh, dealt with uh, accordingly. Does this answer your question, ma'am? It does.